Well, that's quite an introduction. Um, turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 19. Uh, Acts chapter 19, I'll read selected parts of this chapter. Acts 19, starting from verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Verse 23. At that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the great god, the great temp- the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, poor travelling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man to the theatre. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture there, venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not know what they were, why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shared in unison for about two hours. Great Adonis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, another image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and, do, and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. 
If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. On Tuesday nights on the ABC, <coughs> the new program called Selling Australia. Have you seen it? It's about how we promote ourselves in the world, and I guess how we see ourselves, or how we want the world to see us, as Australians. And last week was about the Olympics. My voice was a bit croaky <coughs> today, so excuse me. Uh, it's, um, it's about the Olympics, and how we present ourselves to the world in this magnificent display uh, of Australiana. And it was said that uh, when Kathy Freeman lit the, the uh, Olympic cauldron, that was the greatest moment in... I must have a glass of water, this. Uh, just hang on a second. I'll just improvise here. There we go. Much better? It was said... Well, that's much better, isn't it? It was said <laughs> that it was the greatest event in modern Australian history. So isn't that something? The lighting of the cauldron was the greatest event in modern Australian history. Not Gallipoli, not the end of a wide Australia policy, not the signing of Marbo, but the lighting of the cauldron. And when she ran the 400 metres, it was said, the fate of the nation was in her hands. Our destiny <laughs> rested with Cathy in that moment. The Olympics, it was said, did more for reconciliation than anything beforehand. It was said about the Olympics that we became the best address in the world and that event defined us as a nation. Now I think uh, we are a nation obsessed with trying to find its identity. Who we are. And that's understandable because we are such a multicultural place with folk from different backgrounds, different languages, different cultures. What is it that makes us uniquely Australian? That makes us not a Pacific Islander, not an American, not a New Zealander? What makes us, what defines us as a nation? What is it about it that makes us Australian? Do you know that ad in the Olympics, it's still on sometimes, the ad which starts, my mates are the Jackamurras, and there's an Aboriginal face. My mates are the Wongs, and there's an Asian Australian face. My mates are the Donatellis, and there's... Italian Australia. There we are, diverse, different, multicultural. But we all, Wong, Jekamara, don't tell you, we all sit in the front seat of a taxi. We're not up ourselves, we don't sit in the back like some aristocrat. I know that the taxi driver and I are the same. We're equal, we're egalitarian, we're different, we're egalitarian. I eat beetroot on my hamburger. To heck with what people think. I'm going to do what I like, and I like, you might think it's a bit gauche, I like beef on my hamburger. And, what's more, I brew my own beer. I do it myself. We might be different, but we are egalitarian, we are non-pretentious, and we're independent. We're Australians. That's what we are. Now you might find that a little bit humorous, or even a bit pathetic, that here we are grasping straws like that to find a national identity. But we have to. Because we are so, we're so new, our history is so young, we have so few original traditions, cut holidays, even the holidays are important. Christmas, Easter, Queen's birthday, at least we have Anzac Day. 
We should have New Zealand. We have a, that's something which is distinguished. Apart from that, it's all important. There's nothing original. Therefore, we've got to find something that makes us uniquely Australian. Something worth living and dying for. Did you see 60 Minutes the other night? No, you didn't, you're, you're at church. But if you weren't at church, it's 60 Minutes. There's a thing on there about the Palestinian guys who blow themselves up. They've exploded around themselves, walk into a discotheque and just set themselves up on fire and blow up 20 people. Because to be a Palestinian is something worth dying for. And there are mothers with chests swelled with pride that their sons, when they grow up, are going to kill themselves. Because being a Palestinian, fighting for their land, is something worth dying for. What do you think, as an Australian, is worth dying for? Well, not much, is it, really, as an Australian? Um, I lived, as you know, in the land of Pakistan for a while. The Islamic Republic of Pakistan. It's a fairly young nation, only 50 years. Very diverse culturally, linguistically, ethically. But it is the Islamic Republic. They have something that binds them together, and that's Islam. They might be different. They might not intermarry. But this they have in common. They are all Muslim. And they bind them together. And that's something they'll kill for and die for. And that's why when you preach the gospel in a place like, like Pakistan, people get so upset. Because it affects not just their life, but their whole sense of national identity. Now what do we have as Australians that gives us this identity? That if you preach the gospel at, people get offended. Well, I want to turn to moment before I answer that question. If you go to look at Acts chapter 19, as Paul comes into a town, a city, and speaks against what's at the heart of this city, uh, here in Ephesus. Here's Paul in the mid-50s of the first century. We have here a story of what happened in Paul's missionary work there. This is the end of Paul's missionary career, although he doesn't know it. This is his last missionary work. From this point on, there'll be suffering, arrest, trial, imprisonment, and ultimately death. This is the end of the road for Paul in terms of missionary work, but it ends with a bang. His work here is very successful, although at a pretty high cost. Paul believed, I think, in fairly long ministries. He said for three years. And here we have, I think, the best example in the Bible of missionary work. Ephesus, the capital of Asia Minor, the third largest city of the empire. And most importantly, the world centre for magic and idolatry. For there in Ephesus is the temple to Artemis, or as she's better known by her Roman name, the temple to Diana. The most revered and worshipped goddess in the whole pantheon of ancient gods, Diana. A huge temple there, that would see 25,000 people in her honour. Every day, every month, they'd send out missionaries of Ephesus to preach Artemis and to build shrines for Artemis. And folk came in their thousands to Ephesus to worship Artemis. She was seen as the supreme cosmic power, the power over life and death, over nature, over the future. Now we have a record of a prayer once offered to Artemis on the death of a young man. The prayer goes like this. O great Artemis of the Ephesians, help! For all Ephesians know that all things are governed by you and that great powers come to us through you. Give now to your servant what you are able to do in this regard. Raise up your servant Dominus. Bring life to the dead. And we have uh, statues of Artemis where she's covered in breasts. Because she was a symbol of fertility. And it said there were all these often around the ceremonies. Magic and idolatry 
with the lifeblood economically of Artemis. Um, my favourite TV show is CSI, which is on tonight, Tuesday night, like Tuesday nights, set in Las Vegas. I reckon if you banned gambling in Las Vegas and close down the casinos, casinos, you make Las Vegas a ghost town. If you can somehow hinder the tourist trade in Fiji, you cripple Fiji. You attack idolatry in Ephesus and you cut off the economic lifeblood of the whole city. And into Ephesus comes a preacher. And Luke, he describes Paul's work in Ephesus. Uh, successful work, but work brought out a very hard work. Paul began, as normally he would do, by going to the synagogue and preaching there persuasively to the Jews. In fact, too persuasively. Too many become Christians, they get upset, Paul has to leave. We now find Paul renting or giving the use of the lecture hall of Tyrannus, or the tyrant. The lecture hall of the tyrant. Now I know that parents give their kids funny names sometimes, but I think tyrant is a bit unkind. But I can imagine actually students calling their lecturer the tyrant. Well here is Paul in the lecture hall of the tyrant. Now Paul's normal day would run like this. From dawn to about 11, Paul would work in his shop doing his leather work, his tent making business. From 11 to 4, during siesta time, Paul would be in the lecture hall lecturing, debating, arguing, preaching. Then in the evenings, Paul would be in the homes of the believers teaching the disciples. Very long day for Paul, hard work, but worth it. Because all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. I think that's hyperbole. I don't think everybody heard Paul speak. But many would come to Ephesus from, from surrounding towns for business, for, for, for religious reasons. They've heard about this uh, fairly controversial preacher. They've gone to hear Paul. Some have been converted and gone back to their towns and villages like Laodicea, Smyrna, Pergamon, Philadelphia. They've gone back there and churches have begun. So the whole region now has seen the spread of the gospel through the ministry in Ephesus. Very effective. And what's more, amazing miracles. I mean really unusual ones. There's Paul in his shop with a head band around his head, his leather apron on, and folks have got a hand of these, these aprons and, and leather bands and touched them, and those who are sick have been made well. Now I find that a little unusual. I, and I believe in miracles, no problem. But in a city given to superstition and magic, God seems to work in a fairly, I don't know, magical way, doesn't he? People grab a hold of an apron of Paul's, take it to a sick person, lay it on him, and he's healed. That seems to me to be a bit unusual. That Luke says, this is rather extraordinary. There are miracles and odd ones, and these are in the kind of odd category, but that's what God did in Ephesus. I guess he accommodates himself to, to the people. Whatever, it works. And the church grows. And here, in an incredible display of repentance, people take their books full of incantations and charms and spells and burn them. Books worth back then thousands of dollars. So we read the word of the Lord who mightily and prevailed. Not Paul who mightily and prevailed, but God's gospel. Because this is a book not about the victories of Paul, but the triumphs of the gospel. And whenever the gospel is triumphing and growing, the world strikes back. On Sunday afternoon at Homebush Stadium, Peter Jensen spoke and encouraged Christians to evangelize. 
And today, the Herald snapped back. Did you read the Herald today? The editorial snapped back. Two letters snapped back. An article snapped back. All saying one thing. Sit down, shut up. Be like the salvos. People respect them. They do good. But don't preach. Shut up. When the gospel grows, the world snaps back. In China, the church is growing enormously under immense persecution. Last year, in February, in China, 22 pastors were arrested. In March, 30 pastors. In April, 30 members of a Bible study group. One believer, 58 years old, was released after three years in prison, where he'd been interrogated and tortured. On one occasion, they chained him to iron gates, and then opened the gates, lifting up the ground in an agonizing crucifix position. The church in China grows and grows and grows. But when the church grows and the word goes out to proclaim, the evil empire strikes back. And that's what happened in Ephesus. A riot broke out. And the attack will be even more vehement and vitriolic. And what you attack is not just people's identity, but their hip pocket. Here this man, Demetrius. He makes his living from making shrines to Artemis. And he's seen over the months his prophets dwindle. And he knows that this guy Paul keeps on preaching that financially he faces ruin. But he's shrewd, Demetrius. He couches his words in religious terms. Guys, he says, look, we'll face not just religious ruin, but look what will happen to the father love goddess. Right now, Ephesus is a world center of magic. It will become the world laughing stock. And the goddess we love and worship will be derided, defamed, abused. And so, a riot breaks out. Now, I think while allowing some rhetoric in Demetrius' words, what if it's the truth? I guess today's biggest shrine is probably found in the city of Lourdes in France. Where's the shrine to Bernadette? Remember Bernadette? Who saw in the 18th century visions of Mary. And now there are streams, they say, from Lourdes with healing powers. And each year, thousands and thousands flock to Lourdes for healing. If you were to disprove the visions of Bernadette, what would become of Lourdes? It'd be a ghost town, wouldn't it? And who would be the most upset in Lourdes? The Catholic priests? I doubt it. I think they probably have their suspicions about Bernadette. Who would be the most upset? All the shopkeepers who make their fortune from crass little trinkets and Madonnas and crucifixes, whose living is tied up with the worship of Bernadette. I reckon they'd probably riot. And that's what happens in Ephesus. The crowd riots. They go in the stadium, which would take 25,000 people, drag two Christians in there, the whole thing could blow up. Finally, a level-headed town official settles it all down, and peace is restored. But preach the gospel and attack the identity of a city, and there'll be a riot. When I was working in Pakistan uh, some years ago, I was there when the Aussies came for one of their cricket tours on the subcontinent. And I had a Pakistani Christian friend there by the name of William. And I said to him one day, William, this is going to be great fun, isn't it? 
my country against your country on a cricket pitch, it'll be great. I said, William, no. I'm supporting the Australians. I said, why? You're a Pakistani. Oh, I'm a Christian. And they're a Christian too. Now that may surprise you to hear that. That uh, Shane Warne and uh, Glenn McGrath are seen as ambassadors of Christ throughout the Muslim world, but they are. Therefore a Christian country and therefore a Christian team. This man is saying, but I'm a Christian first. Therefore, I'll support the Christians. Because to be a Pakistani is to be a Muslim. And therefore to attack Islam is to attack being a Pakistani. I had a friend there for a while who was a captain in the army, a guy named Mahmood. And we were good friends, we talked about our faith, he gave me books on Islam, I gave him books about Jesus Christ. We had a lot of good discussions. He wasn't a fanatical Muslim, he didn't pray five times a day, wasn't part of a Taliban, he was just your regular common garden variety, everyday Muslim. And we talked together, and one day he said to me, Michael, if I become a Christian, will I have to deny Muhammad? Give up Muhammad. That's really the key question, isn't it? I'd love to have said, oh no, you can can keep Muhammad and have Jesus too. That's fine. But I couldn't say that. I said, yes, Muhammad. If you become a Christian, you'll have to give up Muhammad. I'll never forget his words. This was 22 years ago. He said to me, I could never do that. Because you see, for him, to be a Muslim is to be a Pakistani. That's, That's his everything. His national identity, his family, his culture, is everything. His job as a captain is to defend his country from those who would seek to destroy it. And here am I saying to him in his terms, betray your country. Betray your land. Give up your prophet and become a Christian. No one then said, I could never do that. Now I wasn't reacting that of him. I actually think if he became a Christian, he'd be a better Pakistani citizen. A more loving husband, a better father. But still it's true. If you follow Christ, your allegiance to any nation is immediately compromised. Your passport might carry the emblem of Australia, but you know your kingdom is somewhere else. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's elsewhere. Therefore, to follow Christ will always compromise your allegiance to any other nation. But what of Australia? No temples to Diana here. We don't worship any gods in Australia, do we? Or do we? One leading figure said this last year. The manifest religion in this country is sport, not Christianity. In terms of daily lives, investment, preoccupation in the media. That was Kevin Gosper the great high priest of the Olympic movement. Exaggeration. A couple of years ago, John Howard described Donald Bradman as the greatest living Australian. Not the greatest living cricketer, or even the greatest living sportsman, but the greatest living Australian. We are told that to watch the Rugby World Cup final was a national duty. It was said on one of the rare occasions that Swan brought a footy game, it was said, <laughs> yes. the Red Sea opened 
and plug and let us through to the promised land. <laughs> the SCG and the MCG are regularly described as shrines and holy turf. Study of Australia was once described as being cathedral silent. And when the ABC had a short between the two programs of Bradman Oval Barrel, the background music was Handel's Messiah and the words for the Lord our God, omnipotent reigner. And the implication was clear. The Don is God. There were ticket tape parades for Victoria sports teams, volunteers. Can you imagine a parade for the victorious Sydney Symphony Orchestra back from a triumphant world tour? Or the victorious volunteers back from relief in earthquake-ridden India? You've got to be joking. Who gives such a parade? And besides, who would go? And then, our national anthem. Which must be the most self-serving in the world, isn't it? Our land abounds in nature's gifts. Whose gifts? In history's page, let every stage advance Australia fair. Let us make our name great among the world. There was once another people who sought to make their name great amongst the world. And on what page will our name be advanced? Well, of course, the sports page, won't it? Now, I know a lot of the veterans and journalists. I had a mate a while ago who told me he went with his friends to see the Grand Prix in Melbourne to the day off work. And they filled in the absent tissues why they, why they weren't at work that day. They wrote down religious festival. It is journalese. That's true. But it is true also. There's more to it than that. Now, sport, of course, isn't like the worship of idols. Sport's a good gift. A gift of God for us to enjoy and cherish and thank Him for. But remember, friends, it's God's goodness that are often the greatest danger to growth and godliness. Someone has said, the greatest threat to hunger for God isn't poison, but apple pie. That which will keep you from the table of God's presence isn't a banquet with the wicked, but nibbling at the table of the world. What keeps folk from church on Sunday morning? An adulterous affair? A night of gambling at the casino, drunken debauchery the night before, they're not usually. Normally a lovely picnic beside Sydney Harbour. Time with family and friends. Sunday morning baseball. Of all the things that can destroy our faith, when our Lord of the Power describes the things Satan uses to keep us from a banquet table of God's love, excuses people make for why they can't come, they are, I bought a house just up on the central coast near Evoca. I've bought a head of oxen. Let's make it a Pajero. I've married a wife and I cannot come. The greatest threat to our, to our love for God is not his enemies but his friends. His good gifts. And when they replace our love for God the idolatry is scarcely recognisable. 
when non-Christians tell us that our manifest religion in this country is spoiled, you ought to pay attention. Let me say a couple of things before I finish up. As I said, sport is not like the worship of Allah or Artemis. It's a good gift from God given to it to be enjoyed. But secondly, let me say also, there is here a word of warning. There may be some, even here today, who are so obsessed with this gift that they need to take radical action. Like, like the Ephesians who burned their books. In 1909, the City of Morning ran a little competition and asked people to write a little ditty or poem beginning with the words If Christ came to the Sydney Olympics. The best contribution, I think, was this one. If Christ came to the Sydney Olympics, would he have cause to cheer? Would he, preach God, would he preach God's word and heal the sick? Or just sit back with the beer? Perhaps he'd even raise those who died. But I fear the news report. Today, Jesus Christ was crucified for distracting us from sport. What's our national identity? I think it is right now that we are a nation of independent, egalitarian sports lovers. That's a good thing to like, sport. But it's not our first allegiance. It should never keep us in the presence of God or his people. Whenever you preach the gospel in a city, you challenge the idols of that city. Be that Allah, or Artemis, or even sport. Amen.